Hi, and welcome to Deep Breath In, the BMJ's podcast for GPs, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. In this episode, we're bringing you the full interview, A Deep Breath, with Whitney Robinson, a social epidemiologist and associate professor at UNC Chapel Hill. I wanted to talk to Whitney to get her take on how we should be thinking about risk when it comes to COVID-19 infection and vaccine rollout. We had a nuanced conversation about the health and economic disparities of COVID-19, the consequences of failing to reach the most vulnerable groups, and the importance of tackling this from a community level. We also begin to think about what kind of post-pandemic normal we want to come back to. I loved talking to Whitney for so many reasons, and conversations like this are even more vital as we hear reports of declining vaccination rates in COVID-struck India and rising global pressure to waive COVID vaccine patent rights. Don't worry, we'll be back next time with a full episode of Deep Breath In, talking about health anxieties. Until then, over to Whitney. Hello, I'm Whitney Robinson. I'm an associate professor of epidemiology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the Gilling School of Global Public Health. Thank you so much for joining me today, Whitney. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. Um, I was reading some of your writing in a counter argument to Zainep's newsletter, and it was all about the importance of kind of thinking about risk in the right way, in the accurate way. And in that particular moment, Stanford University Hospitals had just um, rolled out their vaccine, their COVID vaccine prioritization in a way that left many people in forward facing patient interaction roles without vaccine coverage, while people who had the um, role of working from home got their vaccine based on age. And so we'll jump right in. I wonder if you can um, tell me how we should be thinking about risk when it comes to vaccine prioritization. Um, and just to say for the, U- the UK context, for some of our UK listeners, um, the UK was looking at how to kind of continue their vaccine rollout, which according to most people has been relatively good in the world with respect to speed, Um, but they opted not to include occupation and racial identity in their kind of algorithm for how to proceed with the next stages of their rollout. And it's left many of us concerned that they're not actually reaching the groups who might be at highest risk. So I wonder if you could comment on that and how we think about risk during this time. I'll start kind of big picture. So even the idea of vaccination prioritization is a response to a problem, a response to the problem that we cannot vaccinate everybody instantaneously. If we could say, okay, we are going to designate today, March 17th, 2021, as the day we vaccinate everybody, we'll start at 8 a.m., we'll finish by 5 p.m., the order wouldn't really matter that much because whether you end up at 8 a.m. or 5 p.m., it's not going to make that much difference to most people. Uh, and so prioritization ends up mattering a lot based on how long it takes. The difference between when that first person is vaccinated versus when that 
last person is vaccinated. And if that's a very long time, that could have enormous stakes for the people who are at the back end in terms of morbidity and mortality and suffering. And another thing is how great the infection risk is over that same period. And so I use the example of a very short time frame. If you could vaccinate everybody in a day, I'd be perfectly fine with it being random because the stakes are kind of low. Another setting in which the order might not matter as much is a setting like in New Zealand, or I think the Faroe Islands is also pretty much COVID free, where the risk of infection is so low, it's practically zero, no matter who you are, then you can, the order might not matter as much because everybody's risk is pretty much zero because of a society level um, set of protections that keep everybody at extreme risk, at extremely low risk. So in situations like the US where we had very limited supply at the beginning and very high rates of infection, prioritization mattered a lot. And there's probably some parallels um, to parts of the UK. I'm not sure if your supply was as limited as ours, but we're having a rollout that's gonna extend over more than six months. And in that time, there are many people who are going to be infected and die. In a perfect world, we'd have a crystal ball and we would know, okay, who's going to get infected over the next six months? Who's going to get really sick when they get infected over the next six months? Who's going to die because they got infected over this next six months? And we would vaccinate those people. (laughs) You know, if we knew that information and somebody said, here's a list of the 500,000 people who died in 2020, sir early 2021. That's the number in the US. It's astonishing. And if somebody had had vaccine for a million people in March 2020 and knew who those people were who were going to die over the next year, and they could vaccinate those people, that would alleviate so much suffering. But if they knew that, and instead vaccinated a different million people, because there's 300 plus million people in the US, you could take that 100 million and give it randomly to a lot of people. In fact, you could give it to many different combinations of people that don't hit the 500,000 people who died. You could vaccinate many people without saving a single life if you do it the wrong way, if you don't actually target the people who are at risk of infection. So those are very extreme scenarios. And unfortunately, we don't have a crystal ball, but the goal is to get complete coverage of the population. And so as fast as possible alleviates a lot of suffering and lets people get back to active life. But another goal besides having the society return to active life is the prevention of illness and death. And in that case, you want to target the people who are most at risk of illness and death. And we don't have a crystal ball, but we do have statistics that show that there are groups of people who are at much higher risk than other groups of people. Age is a huge factor. Because holding all else equal, if a group of people are infected, the people who are older are more likely to suffer extreme illness and die. And that's a really clear fact about COVID-19. But we also know that the risk of infection also varies a tremendous amount. And there are subgroups in the US and also the UK who are just much more likely to get infected. And that's part of the calculus as well. That is so helpful. And thank you for taking that step back to talk about kind of um, those extreme scenarios at either end, because it really helps to frame the question and kind of get a better sense of what is at stake. 
And so I wonder, um, just kind of continuing on, what in your mind, other than, you know, getting it so wrong that the people who were at highest risk are going to die and not being able to help them with a vaccine, what are the consequences of getting this calculus wrong? And so definitely the morbidity and mortality has been at the forefront for us. We have increasing evidence that the vaccines stop or they don't stop transmission, but they lower transmission risk. So maybe I'm 25 years old and I'm at very low risk of dying if I get infected. But maybe I live in a crowded household with seven other people, including some people who are older and at higher risk. Um, what's at stake also is my ability to function in the world and provide for my family without worrying that I am going to infect people I love. So it still does come down to morbidity and mortality, but sometimes people don't think about the risk of younger people who are often the critical nodes in a network that propagate the spread of the coronavirus. I think people tend to think about where it lands and ends up in extreme morbidity and mortality, but it's an infectious disease. And so it's really important to think about the networks of people and the networks in which the disease spreads. And in American society, and from what I've seen somewhat in a lot of parts of the UK, um, there are groups that really do have different networks by socioeconomic status and wealth and ethnicity, um, that there are connections, but to have a system in which COVID is really spreading through one community and affecting them really badly and where one community is losing so much, losing time even away from work, which can have huge economic repercussions when you're sick or you have to quarantine or isolate, the loss of health, especially for older family members and those with comorbidity. Um, we're increasingly thinking about long COVID and people who have symptoms that are somewhat chronic and last a long time, even if they don't end up hospitalized or die. When you have a society in which so much of the risk is concentrated in some parts of society, it's not really healthy for a society to have one group of people bear so much of the risk in what is really a societal just failure of protection. Um, so I do think about that. Um, yeah, I think about economic outcomes, social outcomes, loneliness, health outcomes, both in the short term and long term, and just public faith and trust if people see that one group in society kind of manages to be protected and will come out of this with their jobs and their wealth and their families intact while others suffer a great deal. I just think that that's just bad for society. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, so New Zealand has, like most people know, um, approached COVID-19 with a, what we call an elimination strategy, right? Mm -hmm. Where we really work hard to detect cases. There's an active public information campaign about coming forward for COVID-19 testing if anyone has cold symptoms. And, you know, the government has implemented now several lockdowns. We're up to four, which mm -hmm. I appreciate by global standards seems minimal. Um, <laughs> but we've, we've enacted four lockdowns to the, the term here is stamp it out. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so the UK, unsurprisingly, after months of lockdown, is is considering whether it would be appropriate or feasible to move toward an elimination strategy. Oh, that's and interesting. Some people have argued that while kind of ethnic minority communities and low-income communities who have maybe insecure housing, multiple jobs, forward-facing roles um, would benefit with respect to reduced infection risk, that the economic impact on their businesses, on their livelihoods, on their families by as a result of what a lockdown to eliminate the virus would entail could potentially be more harmful, so harmful that it would outweigh whatever health benefit they would have by reducing infectious risk. I wonder what you think about that. I mean, that is, yeah, it's a fascinating epidemiologic question and ethical question. Epidemiologically, it would be really interesting to think about somebody who could model the effects of a lockdown at the end of an epidemic. I hadn't even really considered that. I think it's a very different thing to use a stamp it out strategy at the beginning to keep the virus from spreading in the first place versus at the end. Using a zero um, strategy, an elimination strategy, a stamp it out strategy at the beginning and then intermittently to keep the virus from spreading has universally beneficial effects on everybody. It is um, something that produces a social good that everybody from the most poor to the wealthiest gets to benefit from living in a place where there is no community spread of COVID. Um, But then a strategy like that at the end is different because I think it will preferentially benefit those who may not have been at high risk, but who just want to live more freely. Um, And it probably doesn't have as much direct benefit to communities that have been hit hard. First of all, a lot of them, have already been infected and might already have some immune protection. They've already suffered quite a bit, frankly, um, in a way that you can't take back. Uh, so I think it is less clear cut the balance of effects of this kind of strategy that is going to have the most economic and perhaps social pain for those who are the least well off and not clearly necessarily give the most outsized benefit, probably still giving a lot of benefit, but not as clear as the case of prevention from this spreading at all, which gives a very clear benefit to the groups that would theoretically be most at high risk. Um, that is an interesting question that I do not have an answer to, but I think it is more complicated than it would seem because of the difference in whether that strategy is used at the beginning to prevent community spread from happening at all versus being used at the end, I think the implications are different and the trade-offs are different. Um, I really like the way that you laid that out, especially thinking about how potentially doing the strategy from the beginning produces a social good. Whereas at the end, obviously that trade-off is more complicated and perhaps impossible to measure And also at the end, we have vaccines in the mix now, right? And um, I I wonder if you could comment a little bit based on what you know from prior research and the experience, what you've observed in the the US. Um, Like, I, I don't know the details of vaccine rollout in every community. I think it's very community and state specific. 
in the UK, what we've seen is that um, there has been worse uptake or receipt of the vaccine by some of the communities that have these cumulative layers of disadvantage by virtue of their occupation, by virtue of their housing, by virtue of their racial um, identity. And and I wonder if you could um, talk a little bit about what what we should be really worried about when it comes to misinformation regarding the vaccine as especially at the end or what we hope is the end. So I'd love to hear more about how it's going in the UK. We are very jealous of your universal healthcare system and having an actual list of people to vaccinate. In the US, we are flying not completely blind, but with very little universal information about who we're targeting. In the US, it is, as you said, not just state specific, but county specific, extremely variable, extremely complicated, extremely confusing, and more difficult to track how we're doing. But based on the tracking that we are doing, we also see the same thing. In the US, we don't have great information about um, a lot of markers of disadvantage. We have some location information, where do people live? And we have um, information about race, ethnicity, and age. Those are kind of the things that we are able to track in a decent manner, although it's still not perfect. Um, and so I think at the beginning, we saw lower levels of vaccination among racial ethnic minority groups. And um, now that we are moving into younger ages, people are worried about uptake among younger people. Uh, we have seen more skepticism from those on the political right which has been really interesting. Um, we just had a change administration. And so over and over again, our response to COVID has been politicized and that's very difficult. So we have a lot of complex kind of layers um, that complicate understanding vaccine uptake. So one positive thing that we've seen is I personally am Black American and have been doing outreach to Black communities and a lot of other people have been doing Black outreach to Black communities as well. You know, we do have a history of Black communities being kind of abused in research and definitely not having our health prioritized and people are skeptical. People are skeptical about potentially taking something that's experimental that might have long-term consequences and they're skeptical about trusting the government, honestly, um, you know, to say here, take this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that takes some trust. And I think that's understandable. And so a lot of people have been doing public communication to talk about it and also advertising, you know, when they're vaccinated. So healthcare workers went first in the United States and they would take pictures and selfies and look, I'm seeing I'm vaccinated. And that's intentional because some people say, I don't want to be the first. I don't want to be a guinea pig. I want to see how it does with other people first. And I think that has had an impact. I think just time and people advertising when they've been vaccinated and people seeing that those people are doing well in and of itself itself increases public trust. So that is one positive thing that we've seen. So in the United States, um, among Black Americans, um, kind of hesitancy about getting vaccinated has steadily decreased. And I think some of that is outreach from people who they, they trust to answer their questions and explain things, and then also just seeing the experience of others. I've forgotten your original question. Um, I think you actually covered it really well, or I, I think the, the original question was um, how worried we should be about misinformation, but I think you hit that 
unless there yes. was something else you wanted to say, I have a follow on question. Um, I think a really important thing is the implementation um, of how vaccination is carried out. I think we've thought some about the best setting for vaccination. And because of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines needing to be stored in cold settings, a lot of times um, we prioritized big hospital systems as the place to distribute vaccine. But, you know, in the United States, we have a capitalist medical care system and a lot of people associate big healthcare systems with, I got a surprise bill or I was treated badly. And that is not necessarily the best place for a vaccination campaign, which is a public health strategy. I think my state in North Carolina is experimenting with having um, vaccination events, first of all, on weekends, um, a lot of the hospital events are on weekdays when people are working during the work day. Like who can take off um, then? And it reinforces people's ideas that maybe this isn't for me. You know, if they're offering it at times when I just can't come. Um, and so I've been to a vaccination event that was at our local community center. And we had people who work at the community organization who know all of the older people in the neighborhood and who can call them and say, oh, we're having this event and who can answer the question and who are already people that are trusted in the community. And I think people who have earned that trust because these people have been delivering meals throughout the past year, checking in on people. And I think when you know that somebody has been there for you during a really hard time over the course of the year, when that person says to you, I'm offering you this chance to get vaccinated, I think it's a good idea that will help you. You believe them. But if somebody you've never met who's a bureaucrat or who represents a healthcare system that's treated you badly says it, you might not believe them. And then you might look to your network on Facebook or WhatsApp or somewhere else where you do have connections. So the messenger makes a difference. The setting makes a difference. And having the experience of others in your community who've experienced something makes a difference. And I think some of those are strong anecdotes to misinformation. But misinformation is also very pernicious and preys on real fears and also trust networks. We'll have more from Whitney in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsors. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medical legal advice including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org.
I mean, thank you. I think that's such, I mean, so many good points there and really important considerations in how we think about implementation and kind of what it means to actually reach out to people, build trust, be there for them in a way that's less about persuasion and more about like genuine care and assistance, right? Yes. And, um, you know, so this is a podcast for GPs and a lot of us are wondering what can we do? Um, Mm -hmm. and how, how can like, how can we assist with getting people the right information with building confidence, with engaging people's trust? And I think, you know, if you're, if you're in a community or if you're in a health system where you have a longstanding relationship with a provider, you've already had that chance to build up trust, but it's like what you're talking about, right? Like when you see someone who's not just there for representation, who's not just there for show, but who has been there and actually put in the work, put in the time, you know, built a relationship and, and built that confidence in people. I think it makes a difference. And, um, so I wonder if you can, um, give us some advice, you know, what, (laughs) what can primary care doctors do to assist people in getting access to the vaccine in a way that feels good and safe for them? I mean, one thing I've been jealous about in the UK context is the fact that GPs do have these pre-existing relationships with many people and they can call from their office and a lot of people will have a positive association. And so to the extent that you build on that positive association is wonderful. Uh, I think, you know, accessible hours and locations um, is really helpful. Um, I think that the UK has used an age-based strategy um, which seems like it's working well there. But I think, you know, sometimes I've advocated for place-based and family-based strategies. To be able to vaccinate a whole family together, I actually think it can be efficient and trust-building. Um, as I said, as you get to younger populations, a lot of younger people in the U.S. are expressing, you know, I know I might have these bad side effects, and I actually also know that I'm not at risk, at high risk for mortality. What should motivate me to get vaccinated. And I think for a lot of people, the idea of protecting their family, protecting people they love, because most people are in kin networks with older people who could be at risk, or, you know, even children, for instance, and um, to be able to talk to them, not as just personal protection for you, but in your larger context, being able to protect people who might not be able to get vaccinated or um, just in your larger network. Um, I've heard people who do this work talk about informational interviewing. I totally agree with you that trying to bully somebody into vaccination is not the best strategy. Um, and so what a lot of people will ask, you know, are you thinking about this and what are your considerations? And to the extent that as a GP can just provide information, because sometimes people just want information and don't know who to turn to, um, but also address concerns that a person might have. Maybe somebody is motivated by wanting to protect loved ones or children, or maybe somebody is more motivated by just a return to communal life, or maybe somebody's motivated by not having to worry about getting sick. Um, and so trying to understand people's motivations and meet them where they are. And that takes time. And I think 
a lot of GPs probably don't have a lot of time. I think so many people are tired, you know, and overworked and um, are under so many, so much stress. And so to the extent that we can all take time to talk with people and be responsive to them, I think is very helpful. And I wonder, just listening to you talk about kind of getting younger people or other people who might initially not want to seek out the vaccine to get or who don't have access to it to then try. Um, thinking about motivating them by who else they can protect. I wonder if this is an analogous argument to when um, epidemiologists and others have said, look, don't wait for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Don't get the Moderna just because it's Dolly's vaccine, right? Like get whichever one is available to you first. That's definitely a motive. That's definitely argue appealing to um, the social good because, you know, any one person might say, well, I have a preference. I want to get this one. And I, I think that is an appeal to it will help all of us to get everyone vaccinated as quickly as possible. And if we all get vaccinated, we will optimize the social good. And it's kind of a complicated message. <laughs> so, um, yes. Yeah. And it's interesting as well, thinking about kind of this concept of social good. And I think a lot of us have thought about vaccines and other um, strategies, lockdown, whatever, as a way to quote unquote, get back to normal. And then I hear a lot of people on the left and more progressive people and, you know, myself thinking, but the normal that we had was not great because yeah. COVID-19 has really showed us so many of the inequalities and equities in people's lives that this mm -hmm. virus could have such a devastating impact for some communities and not as much on others really shows that things maybe weren't that great beforehand. Yeah. So I wonder if you could comment a little bit on that. And also this idea of vaccine passports, other schemes that might coerce people into vaccination as a way to, quote unquote, get back to normal. Like, at what point are we really blurring the lines and missing the line, going over the line between public health and this idea of protection and actually getting into a coercion. Yeah, I think it's such a good point. And to the extent that the experience of COVID-19 leads our nations into thinking more about health and well-being and how we ensure that everybody has an opportunity for well-being, I think that could be really powerful. And I think there is this sense of expediency. Let's just get everybody vaccinated and then, you know, we can get back to normal. I think that one thing I think is that that is some wishful thinking. I think we've endured a great trauma and I think we don't even realize the extent of that trauma. Um, so I think probably GPs will be dealing with the after effects for COVID for years in years. And that's probably not what you need to hear because we just want to like get out of this immediate crisis. And I do think it is very important to get out of this immediate crisis, but I think it's just one step to longer term healing. So that's just one thing. Absent everything else, absent really addressing all the inequities, 
to really start thinking about that the end of the pandemic or the end of the national outbreak is just a step along a path of healing. Um, and that hopefully we can take what's been revealed to us, what we now know about the kind of jobs people have, the kind of um, financial cushion people have, the kind of ability people have to protect themselves at the expense of others, um, to use that to think about having a fairer system, because otherwise these things just replicate themselves. I'm a social epidemiologist. And early on, you know, when people were saying, this is the great equalizer, and this is going to affect everybody, people in my field knew that that wasn't true, just based on how the disease spreads, that as people figure out how to protect themselves, the people with means and wealth um, and advantage will protect themselves. And that is largely what happened. And that even within hospital systems, um, we've seen disparities where a lot of the low wage workers were the most likely to get infected and die. Um, and I think even people in healthcare systems really need to interrogate how inequality is part of our work setting as well, not just something out there, but something in here. And to the extent that we think we can end things just by coercing other people into taking the vaccine and saying it's over, I think that is also um, just wishful thinking. It might feel like a solution, but I, I just don't think it is a solution. <sighs> I feel like sometimes, so many times, you know, talking about this, um, and thinking about the challenges that we've already had, mm -hmm. how emotionally devastating it's been for so many people. And then to yeah. recognize that this is just a step and that there will be so a, such a long path of trauma to address and help afterwards. Um, not to mention, you know, the missteps that have been taken by so many um, kind of leaders in the response. Um, Sometimes it's it's pretty overwhelming. It can feel overwhelming. I do think it's an opportunity, though. I think the U.S. is thinking a lot differently about work and how we organize our society. I imagine other societies are doing that too. You know, our you know President Biden and the current Congress are really thinking about the social safety net and how do we take better care of families because it's really shown that in the U.S. our social safety net was just very thin, very bare. And we put so much onto young families with young children. And so I think that one of the things that's coming out of that is a commitment to think about the health of families and children and to think about the health of older people and how we care for them and to think about the racial and ethnic disparities. Um, and so it's a big challenge, but it starts with the step and maybe the fact that there are people having these conversations is good. Um, thank you so much. It has been such a joy to speak with you. Thank you for being so honest and thoughtful. Um, if I want to give you a chance, if there was anything else you wanted to say, just any final note you wanted to hit or, um, point that you wanted to get to give you a chance to say that now. I do want to thank, um, all the GPs out there. I think people in healthcare have been through 
so much and I've learned more about the concept of moral injury this year. The idea of being in a system that you know isn't working well and you can only do what you can do and knowing that you're doing far short of what you want to do is its own kind of trauma. So um, just thank you and please tend to yourselves and give yourself space. Um, yeah. You've been listening to Whitney Robinson talk about vaccinating everyone. That's it for this extended interview. Tune in to Deep Breath In next time for a discussion on health anxiety with Navjoy, Tom, and me, Jenny Rasanathan, in a couple of weeks. Or even better, subscribe to Deep Breath In wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Bye for now. <laughs>